Welcome to IBGI's Ortho Inform, where we talk all things orthopedics to help you move better, live better. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Shahab. With Ortho Inform, our goal is to provide you with an in-depth resource about common orthopedic conditions that we treat every day. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Alejandra Rodriguez-Paez. Dr. Rodriguez hails from Colombia, where she graduated at the top, number one, in her medical school class from the Universidad Nacional de Colombia, Bogota, in 2002. She moved to Miami, where she did fellowship and research training at the University of Miami School of Medicine, investigating the mechanisms and treatment of progressive damage after traumatic brain injury. She then went on to Philadelphia, where she completed her internal medicine residency at the Albert Einstein Medical Center. She remained at Albert Einstein to complete her fellowship training in 2009 in rheumatology. After fellowship, she practiced rheumatology in both an urban setting in Philadelphia in private practice and also in rural Indiana. Dr. Rodriguez has been with Illinois Bone and Joint Institute since 2015 and has treated thousands of patients with rheumatologic conditions. We are here today to discuss osteoporosis, which is of particular interest to Dr. Rodriguez. Alejandra, welcome to Ortho Inform, and thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me today. So let's get right into it. What is osteoporosis? So osteoporosis is a skeletal disorder that is characterized by low bone mass that causes a structural deterioration of the bone that increases the risk of a fracture in the patient. They have low bone mass and low bone quality, so that's why the bone breaks. So how is it defined? How do we know when someone has osteoporosis? Sometimes the patient presents with a fracture, with a fragility fracture. So what is a fragility fracture? A fracture that happens with minimal trauma or when they have just a simple fall from standing. Sometimes patients can fracture without doing anything in particular, especially in the spine. They can cough, they can sneeze or pick up something light, and they can have a, a fragility fracture. So a lot of times the patients are diagnosed through the symptom because osteoporosis is an asymptomatic disease. So the symptom of it is having a fracture. The other way how we diagnose this disorder is through a test called a DEXA scan. Mm -hmm. And that is usually done as a screening test in patients that are, in general, older than 65 that have no risk factors, or sometimes they're done younger when they have different risk factors that we know puts them at risk for osteoporosis. It sounds like osteoporosis is something that we know we have the hard way by developing a fragility fracture or with something we can screen for, and obviously the role of screening would be for prevention. How do you approach a patient who you think may have osteoporosis? Is it something that inevitably develops in every patient, or is it just in a select few? Usually osteoporosis happens more commonly in women, and in men is actually very underdiagnosed because of that reason. So I think that primary cares are more in tune to screen for osteoporosis in women. We know that white women uh, have a higher risk. We know Asian women also have higher risk. We know that men, just by biophysics, they have thicker bones and their risk of having osteoporosis is less. Um, we know that women that have thin frame also have higher risk. It is important also to take a note of other risk factors. Medications, a lot of medications increase the risk of osteoporosis, especially medications that we use in our rheumatological patients, uh, like steroids, and a lot of people have heard that. They decrease the bone mass by different mechanisms. Other medications that are commonly used are the uh, proton pump inhibitors that are medications used for gastritis. Uh, there's Some of them are over-the-counter, so those also increase the risk of um, osteoporosis 
cases and low bone mass. Other uh, things that happen in women when uh, women have menstrual disorders or they have a late onset of the menarche, which is the first menstrual period, or early menopause, those hormonal changes also increase the risk of osteoporosis. Other diseases, um, multiple endocrinological disorders like hyperparathyroidism, hyperthyroidism, uh, sometimes diabetes, cancers of the blood also increase the risk. A lot of the rheumatological and autoimmune disorders such as rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, not only by the medications that we give, but by the mechanism of the disease itself, they increase the risk. So I think that rheumatologists in general, we are more in tune of diagnosing this disease prior to the fracture. If I can summarize a little bit, osteoporosis is different in men and women in terms of the incidence of it. It's different by ethnicity. It's affected by other conditions that patients may have. It can be affected by medications, some very common medications, and all this can accelerate the development of osteoporosis in anybody. Correct. Let's start with gender differences. What's the difference between men and women besides the just more bone mass to begin with? Don't both men and women lose bone through their lifetime? And when does that start? Yes. So usually, uh, normally, for all humans, we reach our peak bone mass at the age of uh, late 20s to early 30s. So Mm -hmm. we call that the peak bone mass. And then as we age, usually around the late 40s, uh, we start losing bone uh, normally. So in women, estrogen is a very important factor in that uh, equation. Mm -hmm. The hormonal differences are significant. But uh, there are other mechanisms in the changes of bone quality that affect men as well. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think it's underdiagnosed. I think in general we're not in tune with that. And then just the composition of the bone, the physics of the bone of a man, they have bigger bones in general. So they're not as fragile as a woman that has uh, thinner bones in general, or the frame is different. Right. We learn about that also that when people age the frame changes a little bit. It tends to get a little bit farther away from the the center of mass, and that has some resistance to the loss of bone density. And so those changes in the shape of the bone are actually somewhat beneficial and somewhat compensatory for when we're losing bone mass. But men start with a bone that's farther away from that center of mass, and so they have more sturdy bone, even if they were to lose more bone to begin with. Correct. So let's go right into it. You mentioned that it's an asymptomatic disease. So people who are developing osteoporosis don't know they have it, correct? Correct. So I I tell a lot of my patients because they come in and say, I don't feel anything. Why do I need to take this medication? So we know that osteoporosis is very common. So we know that one in two women and one in four men over the age of 50, they have a high risk of having a fracture. We know that it's a very costly disease. So the treatment of osteoporosis, we know by the year 2018, was about $52 billion in the United States just by the cost of hospitalization, fracture care, so on and so forth. It is also deadly. We know that a patient that has a hip fracture mm-hmm. has about a 25% to 30% of dying in the first year after fracture. We know that about 25% of those patients also go to long-term care facilities. They never recuperate their baseline uh, function. And up to 50%, they lose their independence. The woman's risk for fracture is a combined risk of having uterine, breast, and ovarian cancer. And for men, they're more likely to have a, a fracture than having prostate cancer. So it's a very common disease. 
we have a saying in orthopedics because we treat so many of these hip fractures that we enter the world through the pelvis and leave the world through the hip. Yes. And the hip fractures are an underappreciated, deadly fracture. And, you know, people think of it as, oh, it's just a broken bone, but it's, it's so much more than that. And it frequently spells the beginning of the end for many people when they fracture a hip. Correct. You're totally right in so general. I did not know that about being that common in men. And I have this absolute bias that it's so much more common in women. And I don't even view this as a huge problem in men, though I know it is. And it must be difficult to overcome that bias, particularly with male patients who you're telling you have osteoporosis, you need this treated. Yes, correct. Now, you mentioned DEXA scanning as a means of screening. Explain to patients what a DEXA scan is. So DEXA scan is a test that is done in a machine that you have to lay down. It's mm -hmm. x-ray based, but mm -hmm. the amount of radiation that you get with a DEXA is very minimal. It's less than a cell phone probably or, or traveling in an airplane. So basically, we scan the lumbar spine and the hip most commonly. Sometimes mm -hmm. we scan the distal forearm, depending on different uh, risks of the patients or circumstances also. And that gives us information regarding the bone density. So it's important to know that the bone strength has two components, the bone density and the bone quality. Mm -hmm. Measuring this bone density through the DEXA scan gives us information about the fragility of the bone or the risk of fracture. So that is why it's a very important tool. And that's how the WHO created this criteria to help us diagnose osteoporosis. So they created this thing called a T-score that is based on a standard deviation of the average bone density of healthy 30-year-olds. And then if your T-score is more or equal to minus 1.0, your bone density is normal. If it's between minus 1.0 and minus 2.5 is what we call low bone mass or osteopenia, as most people know it. And when it's below minus 2.5, is considered osteoporosis. You're actually, being, when you have a DEXA scan, you're being compared to a group of 30-year-old women, correct? Yes. And that's, that's the standard. So that's picked as normal bone density. Correct. And then if the minus 1, is that a single standard deviation? In other words, you're sort of at the 33rd percentile of bone density when you're at minus 1? Yes, correct. So it's one standard deviation from the average. And then when you're at minus 2.5, you're at what percentage? Probably like 5%, right? I mean, you're two standard deviations yes, away correct. from... So you're really in the fifth percentile of all women age 30 for bone mass. Correct. And the reason why is compared to that population around age 30 is what we were mentioning before. At around age 30 or late 20s is when you reach your peak bone mass. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, that's when you have your highest bone density. So it's funny. I, I, I'm going to take a little sidebar. I had a mentor in residency training who was a metabolic bone specialist. So he had an osteoporosis practice. And he talked about the standard being 30-year-old milkmaids in Wisconsin. <laughs> and he often joked that if we only had the comparison against WAIF models in Los Angeles, that we'd all feel a heck of a lot better about our bone density. That is, that is a funny story. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And actually, nowadays, we're seeing more younger females having osteoporosis because I think they're probably not reaching their adequate peak bone mass with all these new diets going dairy-free mm -hmm. and yeah. all these new... Um, you know, standards of, of beauty that a lot of younger females tend to have eating disorders, which right. is a major problem. Then we're seeing that you're reaching a lowest peak bone mass. So obviously you start with less and as you reach menopause then. So then you're, you're alluding to this a bit. I mean, 
in order to prevent osteoporosis, there's a lot of work that can be done to increase your peak bone mass so that when you actually start losing bone, you have a better starting point to lose that bone mass. Is De that correct? Definitely. So ideally, uh, you should have a, an ad adequate intake of calcium and vitamin D. Mm -hmm. In general, we recommend that with diet at the most part. So in younger females, we're recommending that they have their intake of dairy or dairy-related products or that they have calcium. Supplements in younger age are not recommended necessarily because they, there's no data suggesting that that decreases the risk of fracture when you're younger. Mm -hmm. When you have osteoporosis or risk factors or low bone mass, uh, there is data suggesting that calcium supplements uh, do decrease the risk of uh, fracture. There has been controversy regarding the supplements mm -hmm. in the past few years regarding increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Unfortunately, there's a lot of studies that are showing positive and negative effects, so that's still up in the air. There's still a lot of controversy, but in general, we do recommend that. However, we know that the absorption of calcium is better through foods. Mm -hmm. So in general, I recommend my patients that they should have about 50% with diet, 50% with supplements. And the reason being is that as you age, having a lot of dairy and things like that is difficult, not only because as we age also we develop lactose intolerance, most adults, mm -hmm. but also because a lot of our patients have high cholesterol and other problems and then they have to limit their intake of cheese or other fatty foods and, and dairy has some fat in it. And also it's just difficult from the amount that we recommend. It should be in postmenopause also women and men over 50, about 1,200 milligrams of calcium daily. Mm -hmm. With the vitamin D, it's recommended to have about 800 units to 1,000 units, but that's very variable, especially here in Chicago. We don't get much sun through the year or at least six months of the year. We don't get that. So we see a lot of vitamin D deficiency, mm -hmm. and a lot of patients might need higher than that. And vitamin D is not readily available in foods as much as calcium. So a lot of patients require supplements. So we usually measure their level, and we try to target to a normal level and give them directions regarding how much they need to take. So the diet's obviously critically important to building bone mass when you're younger to reach your optimal peak bone mass, Correct. but it's also critical to maintenance of bone as you age so that you're losing bone at a slower rate, correct? correct? Yes. Okay. What other factors besides diet can be helpful for patients maintaining their bone mass as we age? Exercise is also very important. Okay. So, so specific types of exercise? So yeah. So weight-bearing exercises are very important. We know that there are some impact exercises also like jumping, jumping jacks and other things like that. Or exercises that focus more on your hip girdle area that contract the, all the gluteus muscles. Those exercises increase your hip bone density. Mm -hmm. And other weight-bearing exercises like lifting weights and other things like that, they tend to help with your lumbar spine bone mineral density. So a lot of patients tell me, oh yeah, I exercise, I walk. So walking does not help increasing the bone density in studies. However, we know that patients that are active have better bone density in general or is good for your bone health, but also is good to decrease your risk of falling. As you alluded to at the beginning, the, the whole purpose of the treatment of osteoporosis is to prevent fracture. Correct. A patient frequently doesn't know they have osteoporosis until it's too late because it's a silent asymptomatic condition they've, they've already broken. Correct. If you have a, a patient who's exercising 
and they're less likely to fall because of better balance through the exercise, yeah. then they're obviously less likely to break um, because they're just not falling. Correct. So that's very important. I also tell the patients to work on their core and balance training, especially mm -hmm. as they age, to decrease their risk of falling. And also we talked about different other things regarding fall risk. As you age, you have to make sure that you get an eye examination, that you have adequate glasses. Uh, in older patients, I tell them not to have loose rocks around the house or try to prevent having decorations or mm -hmm. things that they're going to trip on. A lot, of our, a lot of our patients go to the bathroom at night and, and I do see them falling from the bed or just tripping at night and I tell them to have an adequate lighting or like a night light in, in the path where you go to the bathroom so that they can see. And also have um, modifications in their bathroom if they need, if they have weakness, if they need any sort of stool or any handle in their shower or by the toilet. That's also very important just to reduce overall risk of fracture. Also, you know, with older patients, polypharmacy is a problem, so they take a lot of medication sometimes that can make them um, drowsy or dizzy so that also we go through those lists and try to see what can be discontinued or minimized or used more sporadically if necessary. So the, the treatment of osteoporosis really has a lot of preventative strategies. It's preventing the loss of bone, preventing falls with all of these suggestions that you have for in the home with the nightlight and getting up and making sure you're not going around when you're drowsy after medication. So it's, it's really a preventative treatment because these fractures can be so devastating if they occur. Correct. Now, just to switch back a little bit, you mentioned earlier that a DEXA scan measures bone density, but there's also this concept of bone quality. Do we have any tool to measure bone quality? Unfortunately, in clinical practice, we don't. But we know that even sometimes with treatments for osteoporosis and you have stable bone density numbers, we know from research that the bone quality continues to improve, that the microarchitecture of the bone improves with treatment overall, despite of the number of the bone density. So we're kind of using bone density as a surrogate measure of bone quality, correct? Yeah. But there's still a subtle difference. Yes. So both of them, those two components make the bone strength in general. Mm -hmm. So I try to s explain to my patients, sometimes they see that their bone density is the same or continuous, and why do we continue this medication? And I explain to them that that's the reason. And also we know that from studies, the stabilization of bone density means that the, their success of treatment also. So I also tell them that they should not expect that the medications make them go to normal bone density. That never happens really or very rarely. So that's the way we have to monitor and estimate the risk of fracture. DEXA scanning is one tool for defining osteopenia and osteoporosis and bone density and bone quality. What are some other tools at your disposal that can help you determine what would be the best preventative treatment strategy for a patient? So Things that we do also in the evaluation, we check uh, some blood tests to evaluate if there's any other conditions that are related to the bone loss. Mm -hmm. We call secondary causes of osteoporosis. So at the beginning, we kind of see if the patient has any endocrine disorder or any other disorder that can weaken their bones further than just the regular osteoporosis. What, what are the common endocrine disorders? Thyroid? So thyroid, so we usually check. Vitamin D deficiency is mm -hmm. a one that is very common, so we always check vitamin D. Thyroid disorder, kidney disorders also can cause mm -hmm. um, bone loss. 
um, parathyroid disorders, also disorders of phosphorus mm -hmm. and magnesium. There are rare genetic disorders that can cause osteoporosis or other metabolic diseases, so we always kind of look for that. So you screen for those things with blood testing? Yes, with yes. blood testing, so in, in the initial evaluation. And regarding prevention, I think everybody qualifies for those suggestions that I mm -hmm. mentioned, uh, regardless of their number. Sure. Is family history important? Family history is very important. Good that you mentioned that. So if uh, you have a family member that has had a um, fracture or has osteoporosis, especially a first-degree relative, so that's something that we always ask the patients. A first-degree relative? Uh, mother, mom. mom or dad, mm -hmm. uh, if they have had a hip fracture, that actually increases your risk of fracture significantly, and that's part of FRACS. Um, so, so explain what FRACS is. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with FRACS. I, I use it frequently with patients who ask me questions about osteoporosis, and as a surgeon, I frequently treat poorly managed osteoporosis that we end up operating on the broken bone. And obviously, we would be much better off preventing the bone from breaking in the first place. And so I love the idea of FRAX. Can you explain what that is? So FRAX is an algorithmic calculation. What does it stand for? Fracture Risk Assessment Tool, I yes. believe? Right? Yes, correct. So explain what the Fracture Risk Assessment Tool is. I, I use it just to tell patients, look, there's more to this than just your T-score um, your bone density test from a DEXA scan, which is comparing you to 30-year-old women. And obviously, as we get older, you're not going to have the same bone density that you had when you're 30 because we all lose bone. So you wouldn't expect to be in the 90th percentile of 30-year-old women when you're 80 years old. So what is a fracture risk assessment tool? What does it tell us? What are some of the variables that go into it? This tool is an algorithmic calculation based on different risk factors of the patient. So mm -hmm. it was created by a group looking into helping the clinician um, assess the risk of fracture in the population of patients that have low bone mass. So osteoporosis, we, we have clear-cut diagnostic criteria and triggers for treatment in patients that have a bone density T-score of less than minus 2.5 or a patient that has a hip or a vertebral compression fracture. Those patients automatically have osteoporosis and they require treatment. So that population between minus 1.0 and minus 2.5 low bone mass, I usually explain to my patient that that's a gray zone. And FRAGS helps us to determine the risk of fracture. So it takes into account age, their mm -hmm. weight, different risk factors. Some of them are um, history of parental hip fracture. So either your mom or dad had a mm -hmm. hip fracture. If you have had a, a fracture, a fragility fracture. Also smoking, use of glucocorticoids. If they have history of rheumatoid arthritis, if they consume more than three alcoholic beverages a day. It also takes into account the T-score. Uh -huh. Sometimes you can calculate it with and without the T-score. And that gives you a number. And usually they, um, in the criteria of treatment, when they have a, a risk of major osteoporotic fracture, more than 20%, that uh, prompts you to suggest treatment to that patient. Or if you have a risk of hip fracture, more than 3% based on FRAX calculations. So I usually tell my patients that helps me put them in within that gray zone to see if they're closer to osteoporosis, if they require treatment, or if we can continue to monitor them without a pharmacological treatment obviously uh, making all those uh, changes regarding lifestyle, calcium, vitamin D, mm -hmm. exercise. So across the board, you know, the patients that have some degree of low bone mass, those are indicated. So the FRAX is a, a useful tool for those patients in the gray zone who don't have 
fully defined osteoporosis with a T-score greater than minus 2.5, meaning like minus 3, minus 4. Yes, correct. And um, also for patients who've had fractures, they are of the hip or of the wrist. Yes, or of the uh, spine. Right, so spine. those are the fragility fractures that are osteoporosis defining. Correct. So there's this large swath of patients who are in this gray zone and the fracture risk assessment tool can help give you, it gives you an output of what your estimated risk of fracture is over the next 10 years, correct? Yes, correct. And so that risk of 3% or 5% of having one of these fractures over the next 10 years can help you make a decision. Do we treat with diet, exercise, supplements, and non-pharmacologic treatments versus do we treat with a pharmacologic agent? Correct. Also, um, well, there's some caveats regarding FRACs. So as I mentioned, it takes into account those risk factors, some mm -hmm. of those. But for example, we know that definitely a patient that takes 5 milligrams of prednisone is different than a patient that takes 20 or 40. So it doesn't account for that those change. Uh -huh. Also, a patient that smokes one to two cigarettes a day is different than someone that smokes two packs per day. Or someone that has had five fractures, you know, I have some patients that have fractured five vertebra versus somebody that fractured a wrist. Okay. So, so it's super interesting. It's, you know, I think of FRAX as a more refined tool for evaluating osteoporosis than just say a DEXA scan. Yet even the FRAX tool could be more refined because it doesn't take into account these factors of yes, how correct. much medication you're taking and, and whatnot. So Do you think there are these tools developing to help be more refined about? Yeah, they're looking into different things to help us be more precise in the treatment of osteoporosis. But also the clinical judgment is still comes into play. So we get the FRAC score and, you know, if we know that the patient has other risk factors or we take into account other things that are mostly clinical gestalt kind of uh, sure. situation, then you might, even though they don't meet the trigger for the FRAC score more than 20% or 3%, we might start them on treatment. So I usually try to explain that to the patients because they say, oh, so-and-so was started on prolia or so-and-so was started on this. And, and that's how we made decisions based on the risk factor. So everybody is different. So that's why it's important to have an evaluation and talk to your doctor or seek a specialty evaluation so that that treatment can be tailored to, to you. So much. let's get into some of those treatments, the pharmacologic treatments. So we've discussed in some detail the non-pharmacologic treatments for preventing fractures. Let's talk about some of the pharmacologic treatments for osteoporosis and preventing fractures. First of all, what are some of the common treatments that are available to patients? So um, the most common ones are bisphosphonates, we call them. It's a group of medications that uh, inhibit a cell called the osteoclast that um, is the one that eats a bone pretty much or helps with the bone resorption. Mm -hmm. So... Um, the, so if you some slow that bone resorption, so you're going to have more bone left over. Correct. And, and the cells the that build that bone, which are the osteoblasts, can build that bone. Mm -hmm. Fosamax is one that is uh, probably people know it most commonly. Mm -hmm. There's some oral, so Fosamax is one. Then we have Actonel, Boniva, and there's some IV. Boniva can be IV or Reclast, which mm -hmm. is a yearly formulation. So those are the bisphosphonates. Those are the most common ones. There's other treatments um, that are parenteral, so meaning they are subcutaneous or mostly subcutaneous. Really, prolia is another one that is very commonly known. There's two more that are what we call anabolic. And what that means is they stimulate the osteoblasts because they're hormones that are recombinant and similar to the parathyroid hormone. Mm -hmm. That uh, is the natural hormone that 
uh, leads um, bone um, formation. So the two classes are one set of medications that can inhibit the cells that take away bone. Correct. And so would therefore leave more bone behind. And then there are the other class of medications that build bone by stimulating the cells that make bone. Correct. Many people don't know this, but, but bone is a metabolic organ. It's constantly in turnover. And these cells sort of work in a continuous dance where some cells are taking away bone, other cells are putting down bone. And so if you can slow down the ones that are taking away bone or speed up the ones that are making bone, you can help build at least more bone density Maybe better bone quality or definitely better bone yes, quality? Yes, definitely. So they work in both. So they help with the microarchitecture of the bone mm -hmm. and increasing the bone strength in those trabecula, definitely. So why would anybody be resistant to taking these medicines? I mean, it sounds like a home run. So in the year 2000s, around that time, there was a lot of press regarding two very rare side effects of this medication. Well, one is called osteonecrosis of the jaw, mm -hmm. and the other one is atypical femoral fractures. So the thing is that back then, uh, patients were left on these drugs for ages, for 10 years, 15 years. So when those studies started to come up and I started to notice the relationship between the drugs and these rare and devastating side effects, then there was a significant decline in the diagnosis and then the treatment of osteoporosis between the year like 2005-2012 according to some studies there was a steep decline in the use of these medications because patients got very afraid and providers as well. So let's talk about osteonecrosis of the jaw. So a lot of patients have this misconception that they're going to take these medications and they're going to have jaw pain or they're going to have teeth problems or things like that. So I try to explain that that's not the case. Osteonecrosis of the jaw is a non-healing ulcer in the maxillofacial area in patients that require intensive uh, dental work, like implants mm -hmm. mostly. Teeth cleaning is not going to affect you or having a root canal even necessarily. Those ulcers, they heal. Usually the patients that are at high risk are the ones that take high doses of biphosphonates that sometimes is used in cancer mm -hmm. treatment or patients that are debilitated or that are on chemotherapy. So those are the most common patients that develop this um, condition. Very rare condition. Very rare condition. Very rare so condition. the absolute risk of having that in a patient taking biphosphonates is less than 0.001%. So is extremely rare. Mm -hmm. The other rare side effect is the atypical femoral fracture. So patients say, why am I going to take a drug that is going to put me at risk for fracturing if I don't want a fracture to begin with? So these are different fractures. So a hip fracture is usually intertrochanteric or in the femoral neck. These are what we call subtrochanteric fractures. So they they happen more in the in the shaft of the bone. Okay. And we know that the risk of having this rare side effect, again, happens with prolonged use of biphosphonates or m the medications for osteoporosis because these two rare side effects are described ac across the board with all the medications. Mm -hmm. So um, the more you use. take for a longer period of time, the, the greater the risk of this still very, very rare Incorrect. problem of osteonecrosis of the jaw or an atypical femur fracture, which is not a typical fracture that we're preventing around the hip, which is very close to the joint, but a fracture that's farther away from the joint and down the leg. 
Correct. So usually the patients have what we call symptoms mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. uh, with an osteoporosis fracture, you don't have any symptoms. Right, right. It happens, in, that's it. So the patients can have a thigh pain, lateral thigh pain. And then you can see some early changes before a fracture. You can see thickening of the cortices of the uh, shaft The cortical the beaking that we see on some x-rays. Exactly. Yeah. So you can have this uh, early signs. So it kind of develops with time. It's, mm -hmm. And we know that early on you have uh, the the incidence of it is like around 0.01% at 3 years of use of biphosphonates more than 8 years is 0.1% so it does increase we know that around 8 to 10 years of use is when there is an elevation of the risk but still is is very low it's 1 in 10,000 1 in 1,000 1 in 10,000 I mean, very, very low risk. I mean, you're probably at a higher risk of fracturing your femur, driving to the pharmacy to pick up your medicine than taking the medicine. Correct. I mean, Correct. Okay. So I usually, that's why w in these drugs, and also we know they linger in the bone. So that's the theory behind drug holidays. Mm -hmm. So that's after all these reports started, we started doing that. And, and it's because we know that around that time, you start having higher risk of this uh, typical side effects. So we give a break uh, of these medications. And there's studies suggesting that being off alendronate or resendronate or solendronic acid for about three years, you still have a significant decrease in uh, fracture risk, despite of the fact that you're not actually taking the medication. So we do that very commonly now. So that's why I think we even see less of this because a lot of physicians are now more in tune on that. Used yep. In the past, it used to be like, oh, take your Fosamax, and it was like taking a multivitamin. Now that doesn't happen. The bisphosphonate medications, Fosamax, Alendronate, that are oral medications, inhibit the cells that resorb bone. And there are other medications that you can use. Prolia is one of them, correct? Correct. So, so Prolia is a, another anti-resorptive, but it acts in a different pathways. It is given every six months. It's a really good medication. But there is an important caveat with this medication mm -hmm. compared to the biphosphonates. It does have a slighter lower risk of having the um, atypical femoral fractures mm -hmm. and ONJ versus biphosphonates. But we know it doesn't linger in the bone, as I was saying, with the biphosphonates. So there is a misconception that with, across the board with medications for osteoporosis, you have to do a holiday. This is only applicable to the biphosphonate category. Mm -hmm. We know that with Prolia, and especially through the pandemic, we've seen a lot of these cases because the patients, obviously, early on, they didn't want to come to the office. They missed their doses, so that was a, a major problem, and it is because we know that with Prolia, if you don't give it within one to three months after you're due for your dose, you start having a rapid bone loss uh, and you can have increased risk of vertebral fractures and multiple vertebral fractures. So unfortunately, I have seen several patients with this problem, especially this year through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We do know that fortunately, if they go back on the regimen, we kind of slowly build up again. But it is important to know that with Prolia, there is no holiday to be given. It is a medication that at this time is recommended to give long-term, and if there is any reason to discontinue it, it should be followed by an anti-resorptive agent, a 5 for a period of time to prevent that rapid bone loss. 
also mentioned in other medications, the anabolic medications. Uh, shortly, there are medications that are given only for a short period of time, mm -hmm. for about two years. Those are Timlos and Forteo. And also those medications, I tell patients, are like a boost for your bone density because they're stimulating those cells that build that bone. And after that cycle is completed, ideally you should be on anti-resorptive. So it's not just to be given one time and, and that's it. So it's important to take that into account. We've obviously learned a lot from using the medications and, and now, do you think we're in a pretty good spot with preventing these fractures or is there more work for us to do medically? What's the biggest hurdle of preventing these osteoporotic fractures that can have such devastating consequences? So I think that at this time, uh, we're doing a better job at prevention with, I think people overall are more in tune with diet, exercise, mm -hmm. being healthy, eating healthier. So in that sense, I think uh, we've come a great deal. But regarding uh, diagnosis and treatment of osteoporosis, actually, on uh, unfortunately, we continue to see a decline in diagnosis, a decline in treatment, and also another hurdle that we have to jump is the lack of reimbursement for DEXA scanning. And especially with the pandemic, you know, a lot of businesses went down and everything. And if something is not financially feasible, it's difficult to continue it. So we do continue to see a lack of diagnosis, therefore a lack of treatment. Well, this seems like a classic an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yes. And osteoporosis treatment is absolutely this. Definitely. It's important. And at IBJI, we have a comprehensive program. We mm -hmm. have uh, DEXA Skin. We have mm -hmm. a wonderful technician that is recognized worldwide. Mm -hmm. he, he's very knowledgeable. We have an infusion center in which we give all the medications that are FDA approved for osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. And our group of rheumatologists, we are experts in this condition as well. And also we have our orthopedic counterparts uh, yeah. that um, are in tune with osteoporosis. Helps us We're experts treat at treating the failed <laughs> prevention of, of these fractures. And so, you know, the Orthopedic Academy has recognized this for many years that if we could become more skilled at preventing fractures, we'd be doing a much, much greater service than using our skills to fix these fractures. And they had a decade of own the bone. Yes. And I, I hope that was helpful in, in raising awareness for osteoporosis. Yeah, definitely. And there's uh, different hospital settings. There's these things called uh, fracture liaison programs. Mm -hmm. And I think here at IBJ, we're trying to do that as well so that that patient that has a fracture is recognized and is directed to have a DEXA scan and uh, see a consultation with one of the rheumatologists or with their primary care for evaluation and further treatment. So where are you most optimistic about the treatment of osteoporosis? Is it in the non-pharmacologic treatments? Is it in the pharmacologic treatments? Is it for both? I think both arenas are important. I'm excited about newer treatments that are coming out down mm -hmm. the pipeline. Two years ago, there was a new agent that has dual action uh, called Evanity, and we're very excited about the approval of that So that medication. works on both the inhibition and the growth and of the bone? Yes, mm -hmm. so it has both actions, so we're excited about that medication. So there's a lot of newer things. Also in IBGI, we have a program called Bone Health Program. Mm -hmm. So because we know how important it is exercise, so we have a multidisciplinary group of physical therapists, nutritionists, and this program encompasses health coaching, nutritional coaching, and physical therapy for the patients that uh, have osteoporosis or that have had a fracture. 
because also with the exercise prescription, I call it everybody's different mm -hmm. because someone that is 90 year old and has a fracture has a much different functional requirement than somebody that is 50 or 60. Right. And also the capability of what kind of exercise you need to do. When I was uh, talking earlier about impact exercises, you know, a, a 90 year old cannot be doing jumping jacks. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, so our physical therapists are really good at tailoring that program to mm -hmm. your needs. Mm -hmm. um, also, we have patients, and I have several patients that are in their 70s or early 80s, and they still ski, they still do a lot of things versus somebody that is more sedentary at home or that has other conditions that impact their balance significantly. So evaluating all those things and tailoring a program to that person is very important. I'm excited about doing all that comprehensive treatment program that is multidisciplinary here at IBJI. Our guest today is Dr. Alejandro Rodriguez Paez. Dr. Rodriguez, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you today and I uh, hope everybody feels that this is helpful. Thank you for listening to IBGI's Ortho Inform, brought to you by the Illinois Bone and Joint Institute, where our goal is to always help you move better, live better. If you would like to learn more about IBJI and our comprehensive musculoskeletal services, please visit our website at ibji.com. The discussion in this podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only regarding musculoskeletal conditions. The information provided does not constitute the practice of medicine or other healthcare professional services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Listeners with musculoskeletal conditions should seek the advice of their healthcare professionals without delay for any condition they have. The use of the information in this podcast is at the listener's own risk. The content is not intended to replace diagnosis, treatment, or medical advice from your treating healthcare professional.